Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because Jesus, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thank you, Barbara. And if you have your Bible and want to turn to Matthew chapter 5, or put your bulletin in that spot, we're going to kind of work between there and Micah chapter 6. You know, we sang that song, I'm always interested when we sing a new song that includes the word Ebenezer. I know you'll be singing that all afternoon, won't you? And, and then most of the time the question is, well, what in the world is an Ebenezer? But it's there in the lyrics. It's a reference to a stone. So every time they saw a stone that marked an altar or a special place, it was to say, here's what God has done. An exact opposite illustration would be the screen door at our home on 17th Street. Paul and I were at home alone. Occasionally a dangerous proposition, close enough in age to wrangle from time to time. And uh, one day I had probably done something um, pestering, no doubt. And he locked me out of the house. I proceeded to kick the bottom of the screen door, that aluminum panel there at the bottom, for not even thinking that one of day or one moment, rather, my mother was going to come home and say, what are you doing? <laughs> if you can keep that in mind, when they saw their Ebenezer, they were wondering, what was God doing? And by the time you get to the prophets, the prophets actually are giving a word from the Lord, and God is saying to his people, what are you doing? Would you pray with me? Lord God, you know what I wanted to pray this morning. Calling attention to how we've been discipled to expect violence. How the arguments against doing things that would reduce human sacrifice to the God of weapons make little sense and only attempt to absolve us for doing nothing. But the victims of 44 mass shootings since the first day of this new year and the recent murder of Tyree Nichols demand lament. We are freer in our country to tell the good news of your love revealed in Jesus Christ than most anywhere in the world. What are we doing? Forgive us our silence, our neutrality, our indifference. Forgive us for withdrawing into our enclaves where we feel safe from these sorts of things. It is a false confidence. Forgive us for doubting that the foolishness of the news of a God who died has more power than our weapons of warfare. 
forgive us for questioning that the weakness of Jesus' response to those who killed him is more powerful than what is in our gun safes. Forgive us for responding to the way revealed in Jesus with, but, God, what are we doing? Forgive us for not doing what we have been told. May what is heard today be truth and only truth in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and all God's people say. Father Everett, who I met last year, he's a pastor in Tulsa. I met him last February. Now, I had met him online. Um, We have mutual friends, and so we kind of made some connections by some messaging apps and got to know him a little bit. And and just this past week, and in light of the events that have been going on since the beginning of the first day of this year, he relayed the words of Elie Wiesel, who was a Holocaust survivor since we just also celebrated the memory of of the Holocaust and their victims this past week. Elie Wiesel wrote, we must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. When Jesus entered Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19 to the shouts of his disciples and his followers, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the religious powerful circled up around him and said, tell them to stop. Tell them to stop. They didn't want to hear any good news about Jesus, and they wanted Jesus to tell tell his own disciples and followers to be quiet. Jesus' response, do you remember it? Jesus' response, I tell you, if these were silent, if these people were silent, the stones would shout out. Maybe Maybe Jesus had in mind the prophet Micah. Or we could say it, Micah was on his mind. The prophet relays what the Lord says in verse 1 of chapter 6. Because for the third time, for the third time in this small little book, Micah tells the people to hear, to listen. He starts, hear what the Lord says. Third time, he has said, hear or listen. Hear what the Lord says. In this chapter, in chapter 6, Micah then gives the words of the Lord. Listen, you mountains. The connection? Well, if, if the religious powerful came to Jesus and said, please tell the disciples to stop giving you accolades, to tell you blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and Jesus responds, if they remain silent, the rocks will cry out. Maybe he remembers that when the Lord God through the prophet called Israel to account, it called the mountains to be the audience and the witness. The mountains would be witness to all that God had done for Israel. You see maybe why Micah was on Jesus' mind in Luke 19? 
You think that the world doesn't know what's going on? You think that there's no witness to what God has done for you? I mean, let it be caution for us. If we are as forgetful as Israel, know this, that there is a world that knows what God has done for you and for me. And if you and I refuse, if you and I are quiet about it, know this, God will call the mountains to bear witness. If we are silent, there's still a voice. And that voice is going to tell the story that the people forget. So Micah goes on, and it is, it is really a grand courtroom scene. It is though the entire earth is God's courtroom, and Israel has entered his courthouse, and through the prophet, he calls the mountains to listen to the arguments, and if necessary, to bear witness to the events. So the prophet is saying, the word of the Lord says, what have I done? What have I done? It's interesting that the question the prophet asks isn't, why have you done this? The question is, what have you done? What have I done? You know, you know the why question, what it does, don't you? you? You know the why question? It really is a way for us to keep chasing our tail. If you've ever sat for a moment to a young child who's exploring the world around them, they like to play the game of why. The game changes when they become early and middle adolescents. Now they want to know why you're telling them. And we still can't get away from the why because it's like peeling an onion, always provoking another question. In this case, God already knew what Israel was like. By the time you get to Micah, Israel's habits had become clear. They were forgetful, they were resistant, they were rebellious, and they were rejecting. God did not need to ask why. He knew what the people were like and loved them still. It ought to be a good encouragement for us. We'd sit around, I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I did that. God didn't ask you why you did it. He wants to know what has he done that provoked what you did or didn't. What's a better question? What is more specific? Why is more speculative? Why is more subjective? What is pretty clear? What have I done in verse 3? God says through the prophet, What have I done to you? What have I done that has provoked the response that you're giving me? What have I done When the thought process works out, when the prophet is supplying the answer that the people seem to be giving. So if you can imagine again, this grand courthouse, 
God is asking Israel, putting them on trial, if you will, what have I done that has prompted you to forget what I've done for you such, to such a degree you forget what you're supposed to be like? What have I done? The response comes back, and I have to tell you, in reading it over and over again the past week, I, I can't help but think, surely the Lord is poking a little bit. Surely in the sarcasm that seems to be embedded in the response, God is actually going, are you really going to give me that response? Well, what, do I, what should I bring you? In what, way, in what way will I ever satisfy you, God? Should I bring you an offering? A thousand rams. Thus, my reference earlier in our considering our offering, do we back the Brinks truck up? God, is this enough for you? Am I giving enough to you? Is it enough? I mean, if the ultimate isn't a slap in the face... What do you want, God? If that's not enough, am I supposed to give you my firstborn? Perish the thought. That was what all the other tribes who followed other gods did. In an attempt to get their God's attention, in an attempt to try to prove their piety and their faithfulness, they would give their firstborn. And God's like, no, 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 no. I don't want your firstborn. That's ridiculous. And yet, a minimum of, a, of 176 people, either injured or killed, have been sacrificed to the God of weapons in just 29 days in this country. And we make all kinds of excuses, most of them rooted in our own fears. I must protect myself looking square in the face of a Savior who withstood the murderers who would soon put him on a cross. Now listen, I'm not saying to be stupid, but our butts, literal and figurative, get in the way. When we turn away from the responses that Jesus gives, all someone sees is our backsides. When we fail to declare, wait a minute, God requires something different of me, and we say nothing, people never hear the good news. I, I have to tell you that this sermon started out in an entirely different way. And, and, and so anytime a, a, a preacher gets up and says, I'm going to do something I've never done before, you should be careful. It generally means it's going to be really long. Uh, but I have to tell you that, that in, in thinking about this passage of Scripture, in thinking about the passage that Barbara read, thinking about 1 Corinthians, where Paul describes the foolishness and weakness of God and how powerful and wise it really is, in putting all those things together, it dawned on me that like kicking in the screen door at my house on 17th Street, where surely Mother Mary was going to say, what are you doing? 
I, as a pastor, as a preacher, sometimes probably should be asked, what are you doing? Why didn't you say something? Why weren't you more clear? So the original beginning of this sermon was, forgive me. Forgive me for any instance where I suggested or seemed to suggest that the response of God's love for you, for us, is to give more money or more things to the Lord. Forgive me for any instance where I suggested that God's rescue of you, of us, should spur us to sacrifice human lives. Forgive me. Anytime I withheld what God told us out of fear that you, the congregation, might get angry and leave. Forgive me for any time that I left that I let any anxiety of being fired for saying things too direct and by result offered only ambiguous references to what's clear in the scripture. We all are selfish, all self-reliant, all self-centered. We all like to preserve ourselves. Forgive me for not hearing the news myself that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love is God's self-giving, other-directed love. God told me, God told us, and He told us this is true. Sermons, the reason I didn't start there. Sermons are not about the preacher, even if we kicked doors in when we were adolescents. To make sermons about pastors and preachers is a mistake. I trust that what you heard in this expression of a request for forgiveness is a reflection of mere humanity, that it is unwelcome to say, what are you doing when I'm unwilling to ask myself what I'm doing? And that seems to be what some of us who use the pulpit from time to time do. We tell you what you should be doing while we ourselves are not doing what we have been told. So I need to hear just what you need to hear. What I've been saying now for quite some time, over and over again, ad nauseum maybe, but I need to hear it just like you. In Jesus Christ, God has forgiven you all of your sins, those past, present, and future, and that as His child, you are forgiven, loved, and His. We all need that. And in a moment of self-reflection, when we're wondering how in the world, in the country where the majority of people think that God established us, we won't quibble about whether I think that's a true myth or not, but where most people believe that, how is it that we carry on with such violence and find every way possible to excuse it? That is nothing short of silently, silently, neutrally being complicit in human sacrifice. Something that God told Israel, no way. No, 
No, God didn't tell you he wanted you to back up the Brinks truck. Didn't tell me that. And he, tell, he didn't tell you he wanted your firstborn or mine either. In fact, by the time you get to verse number 8, the last verse in the passage for this morning, here's the word. Listen, you mere mortals, you human ones. Listen, God has already told you what He wants. He doesn't want all your money, and He doesn't want your firstborn. He wants you to look like Him. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That is what He wants. To make anything else we do, the goal or aim is simply not to hear. It's simply to refuse to listen. To do justice. We've said it before, but it's worth being direct again. Justice is not repayment of evil with evil. Justice is setting things right. The justice of God means God is going to set things right. And the justification of God means in Jesus, He has made you right. He's made us right. That we know what we're doing. We know what we've done. God doesn't need to ask why you did it. He already knows what's in us. And yet, in Jesus, He says, you're mine, despite what you've done, and in spite of what you're not doing. Do justice. Set things right. See, this isn't like saying there is this thing we believe and then there's something we do. If we believe this thing, the Bible doesn't separate those. If we trust God in these ways, these are the things we do. It's not like, well, we start here and maybe we'll progress to here. You can't separate them. If we hear that God says, do justice, then you and I, in wherever corner of the world we are, we are to work to set things right. And we, we've got performative legislators that do nothing but want to get your favor by submitting some of the stupidest Second Amendment legislation in the state and do nothing about the human sacrifice that results from just the free purchase, we are not assisting in setting anything right. We are silent. We are complicit. We are guilty. What are we doing? Do justice. Things need to be set right. God didn't deposit us here so he could make us his and then do nothing. That's what Israel was doing. God made them his, and then they wanted to do what everybody else was doing. Peculiar people, chosen people. Peculiar, yeah. Let's say no when everyone else is saying yes. That's peculiar. When everybody says that justice is repayment, evil for evil, eye for eye, remember Jesus said, I'm telling you something different. Read more of the Sermon on the Mount. Love. Mercy. Oh, love mercy. You kidding? Nobody deserves mercy, do they? Well, if you listen to what folks are saying, that's precisely the prevailing attitude. Peculiar people, be different. Love mercy. Love what you've 
received. Mercy. When Jesus sat down in, on, the, on, the, on the place, whether it's Luke in the plain or Matthew on the mount, when he sat down to say, here's what the kingdom is like, we read and have been instructed to read the Sermon on the Mount, the opening salvos in the Sermon on the Mount, as though this is what you've got to work toward in order to get the promises at the end. Completely misreading the passage. Looking out at the crowds, Jesus tells his disciples, those who've been uh, supposed to pay closer attention than anybody, he looks at the crowds and he sees all the people that by the descriptions in those 12 verses are those who have been neglected and discarded. And he's saying to his disciples, the people that the religious powerful are ignoring are not ignored in the kingdom. So if you're going to be my followers, you can't ignore these people in the kingdom. So, you need to include them. So when the preaching of John the Baptist and the preaching of Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near, he's saying the people that fit these categories that were not considered strengths among people it's why they were refused special privilege or privilege at all. Jesus says, no, they're welcome in the kingdom. Love, mercy. So go back and read those 12 verses again and see how many people today, especially since we've had a rise in a particular philosophy among us that we're not supposed to feel anything, see exactly what it looks like for those folks to be included. Walk humbly. Walk humbly. The idea that you and I are God's people is not a gloating matter. You didn't do anything to be God's people. The idea that we can gloat and want special privilege in our world doesn't make a whole lot of sense in a world that decided they didn't want to hear a Jesus so they would kill him. See, the prophets don't let us get off with being ambiguous. The prophets don't allow us to choose silence and neutrality. Instead, the prophets call again and again to us to say, what are you doing not what are you doing to earn God's pleasure but what are you doing that illustrates you are God's not small g God's God's the possessive g o d apostrophe s you belong to God what are we doing and if as we claim to be a Christian nation then it's high time to live into the name. It's high time to stop asking for privilege and providing proof. I know everybody's worried about religious freedom. It's an angle everyone is playing. I want it for everyone. But I don't want it at the expense of a witness. That is, voices, 
not mountains. Voices, not rocks. You and I, what are we doing, the prophet says. Well, we need to be prepared to say, we are listening. And the way anyone knows that we are listening is what we hear we're to be doing shows up in what we are doing. Otherwise, we can't claim to be hearing a thing. 